Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Luke 24, 13 through 35. You know, on one hand, I was kind of bummed that we couldn't just keep going with Revelation, but on the other hand, it was kind of like, take a deep breath, you know, and uh, appreciate it even more in the weeks to come. But today we're in Luke chapter 24, an incredible story, so visual, so vivid, and I hope that it is an encouragement to you today. You know, we've all found that life is quite the roller coaster, right? With incredible highs and incredible lows. Uh, we're going to get to witness an incredible high today in uh, Cameron Niederhood's baptism. But then there are those incredible lows, you know, whether that's the, the, the cancer diagnosis or the loss of a job, the end of a marriage, the death of a loved one, or any one of a number of things that maybe are not as, as, as low on the high or low scale, but are very heavy to us. And in the midst of the highs and the lows, there are times, we've all been there, in which we feel like God and his love have failed us. There are those times in which we feel like God and his love have failed us, as if he has left us to walk through life alone. Well, today, we're going to take a walk with two men who felt this way. They themselves were experiencing the deepest of lows and felt that God and his love had failed them. One is named Cleopas, and the other is unnamed. It's just his friend. And they are disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, they're not part of the 12 apostles, but they're part of that larger group who had followed Jesus. And this is the same Jesus who just two days before our story had been crucified before their very eyes. And so if you put yourself in their sandals for just a moment, like the rest of the disciples, they had left everything to follow Jesus. They had left families. They had left jobs. They had left reputations. They had left their comfort, comfort and security. They had laid it all on the line for Jesus. And then he died. He was gone. The one who had represented all of their hopes and dreams for the future was crucified on a cross. And now in the aftermath, Cleopas and his friend are left to wonder, now what? Where do we go from here? Well, in the midst of their sorrow, they made a decision to run away, to, to flee Jerusalem. And we do that sometimes, don't we? we? We do that when we're in the depths of despair. Sometimes we just we feel like running, and sometimes we do run. So they chose to flee Jerusalem and to head seven miles northwest to a small village called Emmaus. Now, why did they go there? We're not entirely sure. Most likely it was because they felt there was nothing left for them in Jerusalem. And perhaps they were afraid of being identified as one of those who had been with Jesus, uh, fearful that the, they might meet the same fate that he did. And so they ran, confused, bewildered, and hopeless. Actually, they walked a seven-mile walk with lots of time to talk. Lots of time to talk. So I don't know how fast you walk. Christy walks way faster than I do, and I find it very annoying that she walks so fast. But um, let's just say it was a two-hour walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. 
And on this journey in the midst of their conversation, as they they processed and as they grieved and as they were saddened, something very unexpected happened. And we pick up our story actually in verse 15. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. There's great irony in this story, isn't there? Here they are looking sad in the face of Jesus, the reason for, they think, their sadness. Now, the idea of someone joining you on a journey in those days, it wasn't uncommon. Uh, Travelers would often band together for companionship and for protection. There was safety in numbers. And so at first glance, there's nothing too out of the ordinary here, except that who's the one joining them? It's Jesus, the very subject of their conversation. And that truly is extraordinary. But get this, as the text says, they don't recognize him. Now, why would that be? Why didn't they recognize Jesus? After all, they were disciples of Jesus. I think there are at least two reasons. Number one was a God reason. Um, It said in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Well, who kept them from recognizing Jesus? God. God did. So it was a God reason. He had a purpose for keeping them in the dark, probably to teach them an important lesson. And to teach us an important lesson as well. One that they would not soon forget, and I pray that we will not also. But there was also a human reason. A little bit later, we'll see in verse 25, Jesus rebukes them. And he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. The point is that it wasn't even on their radar that Jesus could have risen from the dead, that Jesus could be walking with them. And so as they see this stranger who joins them on their journey, it just doesn't compute that this is Jesus, that it could be him. So they didn't recognize it when it happened, even though they were familiar with the resurrection prophecies, even though the women had reported back to them that the tomb was empty. To them, it was just inconceivable. And that's just to see if you're still awake, okay? Anytime I can put a Princess Bride reference up there, I'll, I'll do so. so. Their lack of faith kept them from recognizing the miracle that was where? Right in front of them. And church, that may very, be very well true for us as well. Perhaps our lack of faith keeps us from recognizing the great work that God is already doing work that he's doing in us, through us, around us. We can be guilty, can't we, of walking by sight rather than by faith? May God give us eyes of faith to see that we may join him in the great work that he is already doing, that we will not be unnecessarily sad and recognize that Jesus is right there with us. Well, how did they respond when this stranger joined them on their sad, hopeless journey? Look at verse 18. It says, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Again, great irony, isn't it? And he said to them, What things? 
And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. This would actually be pretty funny if it wasn't so sad, right? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, what things? Tell me. Tell me all about these things. These two guys were freaking out about Jesus not being with them. And that word freaking out is a very theological term, all right? So just be aware of that. But where was Jesus? He's right there with them. And so just as he is with us both during the incredible highs and the incredible lows, even when it feels as if God and his love have failed us, have you ever freaked out? I'm really good at it. In fact, I've kind of perfected it and... uh, Perhaps even some of you here today, you made it here today, you made it to worship on Easter Sunday, and maybe even you know, went through the extra effort, maybe I wore the tie today, but underneath the tie or the dress or whatever is a lot of turmoil, a lot of freaking out that's going on, and you are on your own slow walk toward Emmaus, just like Cleopas and his friend feeling hopeless because it seems as if Jesus isn't with you in that his love has failed you. This story is an important visual reminder of the fact that he is with us and his love never, ever fails. Well, Cleopas gives us further explanation of their sadness in verse 21. Very telling. He says, but we had hoped We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, they had certain dreams and expectations of how things in this life should be. But at the end of the day, Jesus did not fulfill their hopes. He did not fulfill their dreams of what a Messiah should be. You see, they were hoping that Jesus would be what kind of Messiah? A political Messiah. A ruler who would overthrow Roman oppression and restore Israel to prominence. But that's not what Jesus primarily came to do. He did not come to set them primarily free from the Romans, but to set them free from what? Their sin. Demonstrating, I think, something really, really important to us today. That Jesus had a bigger and better vision for their future than they had for themselves. Jesus had a bigger and better vision for their future than they had for themselves. Their hopes were in an earthly kingdom that was temporal. But but Jesus had a much larger vision, a bigger and better vision for a heavenly kingdom that was eternal, much bigger, much better. An illustration of the fact that our hopes and dreams tend to be what? In the natural. In the natural. Dealing with temporal things, worldly things. This life. But his plans are in the supernatural, far exceeding all that we ask or think. The question becomes this, will we trust God's bigger, better supernatural plans, especially in times that seem incredibly low? That was the challenge faced by Cleopas and his friend, and it is a challenge that we face today. It's a decision that we all must face, almost on a daily basis, maybe a moment-by-moment basis. We must choose, do we trust God no matter what, no matter how it seems in the moment, no matter how we feel? 
Well, Cleophas goes on to say in the second half of verse 21, he says, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And don't you just want to shake Cleopas at this point and say, the third day, you big dummy. You know, and it's okay for me to call him a big dummy because it's from one big dummy to another. All right, Cleopas, what did Jesus tell you would happen on that third day? He told you that he would rise from the dead, Cleopas. And this day of your greatest sadness should actually be the day of your greatest joy. This day of moping should be a day of celebrating. But Cleopas doesn't see it yet. And he goes on to say in verse 22, Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So... Cleopas has this mounting burden, or this mounting evidence that's been given to him. He has the Old Testament prophecies, all the teachings and promises of Jesus while he was alive. And now they even had testimony of the women that the tomb was empty, but he still doesn't see it. Now, up to this point, you'll notice that Jesus has been very patient, hasn't he? He's been very kind. He's been very gracious. He hasn't called them a big dummy. And he has been long-suffering and endured their lack of vision, rooted in unbelief. But now, the time has come for him to lovingly rebuke these two disciples. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That word necessary, I think, is very important to us this morning because what Cleopas failed to grasp then and what so many Christians fail to grasp today is the necessity of suffering in this life. Suffering was necessary for Jesus, wasn't it? It was necessary. Had to happen for him to fulfill his purpose as the Christ, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was necessary. And church, suffering is necessary for us. It is necessary for us to fulfill our purpose as Christ followers, to be conformed to the image of our Savior and Lord. You see, it is through suffering that we especially know Jesus and become like Jesus. And so I, I understand perfectly our disdain for suffering and how we want to avoid suffering at all costs but the good news is that God finds great purpose for our good and his glory in our suffering. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Is that your desire today? Do you want to know Christ? To know the power of his resurrection, listen carefully, and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ is to know suffering. It is part of the deal. But God miraculously and so beautifully takes our suffering, redeeming it for his glory and our good. Nothing is wasted by God, is it? But if you don't have a sound biblical theology of suffering, you will continually be disappointed with God and you will question his love for you. 
It will seem as if he and his love have failed. And this is one of the many, many problems of prosperity theology. It has no sound biblical theology or answer for suffering in this life. And it has left so many disillusioned and disappointed. Now, this is interesting to me. How would Jesus instruct them? As he rebukes them, how would he instruct them in the truth of their current situation? How would he answer their questions? Well, he did the same thing that we are to do. What are we supposed to do when we have questions? What do we do? We go to the Word, right? We go to the Word. Using the same tools, Jesus does the very same thing. He turned to the Word of God. Jesus uses the Bible to teach these disciples. Look at verse 27. It says, And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, that pretty much covers the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, can you imagine having Jesus teach you the Bible? That would be fantastic. And so Jesus patiently walked them through the passages in the Old Testament that prophesied his death, his burial, his resurrection. And it was such an amazing experience that Cleopas later said in verse 32. Uh, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Such is the power of God's word. But it's only powerful if you use it, right? If you open it, engage it. But even then, after opening the scriptures, the the, the hearts were burning, but Cleopas and his friend, they still couldn't see Jesus for who he really was. I I think they're getting closer, but it hasn't happened yet. And finally, it says in verse 28, so they drew near to the village, to Emmaus, to which they were going. He, He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. They knew there was something special about this guy. They just couldn't put their finger on it. They just couldn't place it. They longed to spend more time with him. Perhaps he would teach them more from the scriptures. So they invited him to stay. And he did. And they finally got hungry. It was time to eat. And then it says in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it, just as he had done so many times before in the presence of his disciples, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So finally it clicks And can you imagine how they must have felt in that moment? On one hand, sheer joy. His love for them had not failed after all. They do have a hope in a future, but also that sheer embarrassment. They they probably felt like really big dummies, like, oh, oops. What was it about the breaking of bread that opened their eyes? Some have said that it was because they, as he broke the bread, they focused on his hands. And they saw the nail prints. It's possible. But really, it was probably just the fact that Jesus breaking the bread sparked so many memories of past meals with Jesus. Like, oh, that's so familiar. Now we remember. Now we know who he is. Whether it was the feeding of the 5,000. I doubt that it was the, the, the Last Supper because these two disciples probably weren't part of that upper room experience. But so many times they had been in the presence of Jesus eating and breaking bread in the midst of his disciples. 
I'm sure that they had a million other questions to ask him at that point, and perhaps also confession of their unbelief. But they didn't get the chance, because in the second half of verse 31, it says, he vanished from their sight. He vanished from their I can't wait to get my glorified body. How about you? Hide and seek. Can you imagine playing hide and seek with our glorified bodies, disappearing, passing through walls? It's going to be amazing. Well, how would you respond to all this? Well, now you're sitting there now in a room where Jesus was. Now he isn't. And now your eyes have been opened. What would you do in that circumstance? Well, verse 33 tells us. And they rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem. That seven mile, two hour or so walk, they turned around and they repeated it, but in a much different way than they did the first time. They found the 11. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so this story, this is where we bring it all together. This story is really about two journeys, isn't it? In opposite directions. On one hand, we have the road, the journey to Emmaus where Cleopas and his friend were filled with fear and sadness and emptiness, questioning the goodness of God, doubting his love for them, believing that it had failed. It seemed as if the sun, as they headed to the west, to Emmaus, was setting on all of their hopes and dreams. But then there was the second journey, right? And how different this journey was. And the opposite direction, to the east, where the sun comes up, And God's mercies are new every morning. It was the journey back to Jerusalem where they were full of faith, full of joy, full of abundance. It couldn't be more different night and day, west and east. Now they're ready for anything, no matter how high, no matter how low, because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus will be with them. And my question for you today is this, which direction are you headed? In which direction are you headed? If you're already a believer, and I I trust that you are this morning, that you have turned your back on sin and you have turned to Jesus alone for forgiveness and that you have trusted in him and received the free gift of eternal life, I trust that as you today as a believer, the message of this passage is that no matter if you are presently experiencing the highest of highs, perhaps like baptism or the lowest of lows, the resurrected Christ walks with you. And just as Cameron said, with him, we can do anything. We can endure anything. We can be victorious over anything. You are not alone, and his love never, ever, ever fails. He has plans for you, plans for a hope and a future. Now, if you are not yet a believer, you have yet to turn your back on your sin and to turn to Jesus alone for forgiveness, Jesus invites you today to walk with him in the direction of Jerusalem, to the east, the direction of faith, of joy and abundance. He says, follow me and I will lead you there. I simply close with this simple truth today. So appropriate. John three sixteen. you can say it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And as we have seen today, as Cleopas and his friend witnessed firsthand, 
God's love never, ever, ever fails. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we confess to you that so many times we have unnecessarily been sad. We have freaked out. We have been big dummies because we ourselves have failed to recognize you walking right alongside of us, ready to give us exactly what we need, whether we are in a high or a low. We confess that to you today, just as I'm sure Cleopas and his friend desperately wanted to confess that to Jesus and say, we are so, so sorry that we ever doubted you. God, I pray for those who are struggling this morning, who are on that path to Emmaus, who are walking westward, full of sadness and grief. And God, would you open their eyes to the reality of you, your presence with them today. And may you give them the courage and the strength to turn their back on Emmaus and to walk toward Jerusalem, to toward, toward where the sun is rising and your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We are so thankful today for our risen Savior. As the, the old chorus says, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because we know that you hold the future and life will be worth the living just because you live. It's in Jesus.